Hi, I'm Eric Mennel of Stay Away from Matthew McGill, and I am this week's guest on Metapod. You're listening to Metapod, where we unpack the web's most interesting podcasts and the stories behind them, hosted by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May. Hello, it's Kev here. And I'm Wendy. Hello. This is Metapod, and we're back with another unpacking of the world's most interesting podcast. Stay away from Matthew McGill, created by journalist and podcaster Eric Menel and the folks at Pineapple Street Studios in New York. This is an unusual podcast. <laughs> yes, very. As you'll hear our guests say in a moment, this podcast is, in inverted commas, different, blending personal memoir with investigation. The story digs deep into the life of a rather unusual man with a lot of secrets. Secrets that he left behind in a box. However, it also exposes another guy, someone who is perhaps a lot like the rest of us in ways that we might not want to admit. Yeah, Stay Away from Matthew McGill is the story told by Eric Mannell, an award-winning journalist and senior producer at Pineapple Street Studios. Eric has worked on This American Life, 99% Invisible, Criminal, and many, many other shows. We talked to Eric about the box that Matthew McGill left behind and the research that Eric did based on what he found in the box. Eric managed to sketch a portrait of a man that lived an extraordinary life, yet died alone. And perhaps most importantly, Eric explores the question of how people earn their reputation as someone to stay away from. Okay, we'll be back very shortly, but for now, let's start the tape. Uh, Eric Manel, thank you so much for joining us as our guest on this week's Metapod. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, before we dive in with our questions, uh, I thought I'd be, it'd be useful for us to get a sense of what you think the podcast is, because I think people would probably get different things from it from many other people. So, but from your perspective, just a couple of minutes, just describe what the podcast is. Yeah, so the show is um, largely about a box of material that I was given about five years ago by the father of a friend, and it was a box that belonged to a man named Matthew McGill. He was sort of this town pariah in this very small town on the Florida-Georgia border, and nobody liked him. He was just like, he was kind of a bad salesman at a plant shop. He didn't have many, if any, friends, uh, but he told a lot of tall tales about his past, things that seemed fairly impossible, things like that he had been an actor, that he had been married to a famous actress, uh, that his sister was a gold medalist in the Olympics, things that just didn't make sense for this strange dude in this very small town. And then he, when he died several years ago, he left behind this box of material and uh, digging through it, it becomes clear that a lot of his stories aren't were in fact true. He had come from a rather spectacular past, um, which I found very intriguing and seemed like it could be a good podcast when I heard about it. <laughs> I was like, wow, fascinating. So I just did started digging. I just started digging into this guy's past and trying to find people who knew him and initially just trying to understand what happened. Like what happened to this guy? How did he go from a life of luxury and privilege and wealth to dying alone uh, in the woods in South Georgia? 
you know, along the way, the questions I was asking about him, they just became a little entangled with things that were going on in my own life. It was a, a rather stressful time for me and my family, and a lot of the questions I was asking about Matthew McGill and his relationship with his family and how he became so estranged from them really resonated. And so the show is largely about the journey that I go on to like reconnect with my family or with the help of, of Matthew McGill's box. So um, I, I'm quite curious on this. How did you want or how do you want people to feel after listening to stay away from Matthew McGill? So that's the first part. Yeah. How do I want people to feel? Um, like it was a good use of their time is probably <laughs> the, <laughs> where I would start. Um, there's sort of, I guess I have like sort of two answers to that question. The first is like thematically and just in terms of the content of the show, I would like people to be thinking a little bit more about their own roles and their relationships and how we connect to the people and care for the people that are closest to us. Um, and to ask critical questions about that people that you're close to and or maybe used to be close to and aren't anymore trying to like deeply understand why that could have been that could, might be the case and you know sort of assess yeah your own sort of um role in those things so that's the thing I, I thought a lot about with the show it's just sort of editorially um the other thing i i want people to feel i guess is um you know, the show, it's a little different than anything else I've ever made. And structurally, it's pretty different. It is a, a real blending of, like, personal memoir with investigation in a way that I am hoping that people uh, are into as a genre in some way. You know, I'm really interested in expanding what we can do in podcasting and expanding what listeners might be open to and expect when they download a podcast. Um, I was much more interested in creating an experience that felt like a you know, like sitting down to read a book, you know, where you really immerse yourself in the in the story, you know, or a long documentary or series. So so I, I hope that's something that comes across as well. And in the reaction that you've had so far, or how you want people to feel, has that come across in the feedback that you've had? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, um, I mean, on the family front and the thoughts about people's relationships, their own families, um, I've, I've already gotten a lot of notes from people who are thinking about you know, reconnecting with some loved ones and um, mm -hmm. who found some of the conversations I had with my siblings and my parents, like, pretty moving in a way that even I still, like, find them pretty moving. I'm, I'm always, every time I listen back, I'm, like, a little surprised by how open my family was with me. It was, like, a really gracious thing for them to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so the response has been really positive on that front. And even people who were tangentially related to the show where I interviewed at one point listened and, like, have been really, like, pleasantly surprised by how the whole thing has gone okay eric were all of the answers to your questions about matthew mcgill in the box good question um i think initially i had hoped they would be for sure a lot of what i was initially trying to figure out was just whether or not his stories were true you know what was real what was not what about him mm -hmm. was real and what about him was fabricated or embellished he he wrote a lot of things down. There's a lot of journal entries and letters that he wrote over the years in the box, and some of it feels very possibly true, and some of it feels like he's embellishing his own life as well, even in the past. And so initially I thought like I could sort of sift through that and figure out who this guy really was. There came a point, though, a few years into reporting this, where 
it, it just became clear that nobody actually, <laughs> like knowing whether or not some of these specific stories were true, it just wouldn't mean that much. It's They're facts. It's trivia, you know? And what I became slowly more and more interested in was who is the kind of person that would do this, you know? Like the thing that became true about him was the fact that so much of his life was opaque, that he was interpreting his own life in such a different way from everyone else around him. So to that end, were my questions about him answered in the box? I think the questions I landed on, yes, um, but not necessarily the ones I started with. So I like to think about the artifacts that are presented in podcasts. And, you know, in this case, there's a box, there's a cassette tape. And I think the other big thing is that he leaves a reputation and two of those things are physical. The other is kind of intangible. What was it like going through those two types of things? Was one more emotional than the other or feel that one was more true than the other? Yeah. Um, it's funny because I think my response to them were maybe the opposite of what I would have expected in that um, in terms of the reputation and how people felt about Matthew, it was pretty uniform and straightforward. You know, there were there were a couple people in his life who had rather positive feelings toward him, but not many and not many people who knew him well. So oftentimes, I think in reporting, you were presented with like a physical thing of a person's life and then you go and you talk to the people around them and they make them more complex. I think it was kind of the opposite with Matthew and that like talking to the people around him actually in some ways, their, their responses were all pretty similar. But the physical things and the fact of what he kept around and the things that he chose to preserve actually told a much more complicated story about his interior life than anyone around him could have understood, I think. The things he chose to write down, the memories he was rehashing over and over again over the course of his life, that stuff was all preserved physically. And it, it felt to me like it was saying something about him and how he was walking through the world in a way that, I don't know, an outside observer could have gathered. I think what's quite interesting about the reputation that Wendy just mentioned, uh, I'm thinking of both of the ex-wives, Jenny in particular, they all talked about what an amazing time they had with him mm -hmm. in that kind of early phase. You know, he was very charming. He was, you know, everyone keeps on going on about how great looking he was and all these kind of things. Yeah. And I think one of them said, he gave me the confidence to be what I could actually be that I didn't realize. I'm paraphrasing here. But it's quite interesting that there became a moment in all of those relationships when he would just change Yeah. in terms of, I guess, analyzing his personality for one of a better phrase. It's hard when you have someone who's not alive to do too much analysis on them, you know, or of them. It makes them much more of a character than a person um, to, mm -hmm. to try to read those things. I, I never met Matthew. And so I was always wary of that line of like at what point is it am i reading too much into this stuff without having met this person or knowing anything about them so that that's something i thought about a lot similarly these patterns that he exhibited he exhibited his entire life going back to when he was even a child and i'm not a doctor <laughs> and i didn't think it was like totally responsible to try to consult a psychologist on this person based solely on his writings and interviews i had done but what I can do is point out the things that have happened. And, you know, people will draw conclusions from that about what that may or may not mean. But you're right. Over the course of his life, many, many times with many, many different people, particularly with the women in his life, 
he was handsome and inspiring and really incredible for a time in a way that those people still retain fond memories of him. Um, and then something would shift. That pattern is, I think, one a lot of people may recognize in people in their own lives. I think it's, it's, it's actually a thing that's not so, so uncommon that folks who need some sort of control are pretty good at getting people close to them and then asserting that control. And I think that's the thing that Matthew did a lot. I think there's an assumption in the story that it's it's wrong or bad to end up with no family, friends, and money. I'm wondering, why does that bother people so much? I realize I must sound like a really dark person for asking that question. <laughs> no, no, no. That's reasonable. I, I guess I would say it, I wouldn't assume that it's bad to end up that way. I think the thing that always struck me about Matthew's situation is that it didn't seem like he chose it, you know? Like, it, it didn't seem like he was like, you know what? I want to go and live in the woods like Joseph Campbell and just, like, read, you know, for the rest of my life and come up with theories about what plants, you know? Uh, that It wasn't—he was constantly trying to better his own circumstances at the expense of other people. And so— it's not like he didn't have other people in his life, and it's not like he couldn't reach out to people in his life. He had a big family who he did reach out to many times over the course of his life for different things. Um, I think um, it wasn't the fact of his being alone at the end that was striking to me. It was, it felt like a fall, not like a jump, if that makes sense. So this wasn't really in any way a story of where breaking your family bonds is a good thing. No, because I think for some people it's a necessary thing. Yeah, I, I wouldn't try to assume that like everyone needs to be in contact with their family. Um, one thing I was nervous about with the show was because so much of my own experience with this is about um, about my family specifically, the family I was born into, um, and that's true of Matthew as well. I was worried that the takeaway would be that this is like you should fix everything with your family, which. I don't think it's always the case. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but I think if you, if you extrapolate some of the ideas more about the relationships that we do try to hold over the course of our life, you know, be they romantic relationships, be they platonic friendships, be they work relationships, you know, like just the way you relate to people generally and the things you assume you know or assume you don't know about them. I was kind of hoping that the show would head in that direction, that it would feel a little more universal than mm -hmm. thinking about nuclear family. I'm curious if you think this is a particularly American story. I've never lived anywhere else, uh, so I don't feel qualified to answer that question. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, okay, follow up. Um, I was talking to Kevin about this earlier, but you spend some time reflecting on having grown up in Florida. I love the the mention of the perpetual spray tan and, you know, the veneer of the lifestyle, but really underneath that, you don't know what's there and it's probably not as good as it looks on the surface. There's also the part where um, your sister makes a comment, which I think exemplifies the north-south divide of, of culture in the U.S., where she says, um, that's the most New York thing you've ever said. You're really, you're the real pretentious kind yeah. now. I thought that was a yeah. great comment. <laughs> Not as an insult to you, but. No, no, it was a good drag. Um, it was good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, you know, why did you go north? And why do you think Matthew McGill went south? Yeah. I, I spent um, the first part of my career largely in the South, um, Florida, North Carolina, Virginia, the American South. And then I, I wound up 
here in New York more permanently now. Um, a thing I used to say, and I haven't thought about it in a while, so I may change my mind about it by the time I finish this sentence. <laughs> uh, but a thing I used to say was that like people up north are constantly thinking about where they're going, and people from the American South are thinking about where they come from in slightly different ways. You know, like there's a slightly different, which is not to say that like, you know, the Northeast quarter is not obsessed with like the past, like colonial history is massive. And sure. <laughs> I think in South, there was like a greater sense of community and stability and being rooted in a place. And I think there's much more mobility up in the, at least in the urban centers, you know, of the, of the North. And so I think like in terms of why, why I chose to go North and why Matthew chose to go South, I think it was easier for Matthew to disappear uh, down South. You know, it was a place where he had the space physically to just, you know, trot along mm-hmm. and restart every time he needed to restart. Mm-hmm. I was like, it was also a thing he could probably do a lot easier in the 80s than he can do now. Right. Yeah. Good point. And, and, and why I chose to go north. Um, I don't know. I don't, I, I like, I've, I've always just followed work. I, my problem is I'm like obsessed with work. I'm a real like unhealthy workaholic. And so like wherever the good job is, I just like. I'm just like a nomad, like a podcast nomad, you know? Um, I don't feel like I need to be in New York. I just am. What would your family say about why you went north? Maybe that's another way to answer it. That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> um, I think I think they would say that um, that it was probably mostly career-driven in the sense that there would be like a little more upward mobility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think, which is not, like, super, like, emotional or, or sexy answer, but it's just, like, there's just more opportunity for what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to work in TV for a long time, and, um, you know, there's just, like, the Home Shopping Network is, like, based near where I grew up, so I guess I, I could have done that, but, like, mostly, you know, like... You still can. I guess I still can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Life is long. Yeah, it just, it just, I don't know. I just... It just, it was just, it was just, I don't, I think there's some people who wind up in New York City in particular who like have a very fanciful idea of what it's going to be. And they think it's going to, it's like an artist's life where you think it'll like change something for you. And I never had that. It's just like, there's some uh, invisible magnet that is like drawing me here. And I've like, I've lived here like three different times now for different stretches and I keep coming back. And um, okay. Yeah. Eric, how did you persuade every member of your family to agree to expose their personal stories in such a way? <laughs> um, I didn't have to persuade them, I think. Okay. Yeah, it was actually pretty simple. Like I asked once and they were like, okay. And I, and so, sorry, just on that then. So, what did you say? Look, I, I'm, I'm creating a podcast about this box, this guy, and he had all these tall stories and et cetera, et cetera. But I've recognized that my own relationships with you lot have been straight. I mean, I, I can't get my head around how you would come up with the premise for what you were trying to do, let alone then say to them, look, I'm now going to give you the microphone and we're going to expose everything. Yeah. Well, to my family's credit, they've like always been incredibly supportive of my work and career. Like, I think mm-hmm. they're like, they are my biggest fans in a way that's always been really helpful. Um, well, your sister was desperate for you to interview her. Yeah, I know. She says at she the was, beginning of the show. You're just jealous, kid. <laughs> um, yeah, so they've always been really supportive. And I think they've listened to my stuff and they kind of know 
what kind of stuff I like to make. And so they weren't, like, shocked by the request, I don't think. Why they said yes to doing it, my assumption has always been that, like, they wanted to talk, and nobody in my family ever asked questions. Like, you know, we, we didn't eat dinner at the table growing up. We, like, didn't go on, like, a ton of family vacations that weren't to where other family already lived. You know, we didn't, like, go on... So we just never were a family that had built-in opportunities to have big discussions about what we were thinking or feeling or what our relationships were like. Mm -hmm. And so, strangely, I think, like, by giving them the opportunity to talk and by, like, actually just being interested in their own experiences, like, I, they, they were mostly pretty eager my mom was most nervous, and that was because my relationship with her was yeah. most complicated um, heading into that. But but generally speaking, everyone was very game. It's it's interesting, though, because it's quite a leap from all sitting around and finally discussing perhaps some of the issues that you've had to, okay, I'm going to record it, and then I'm going to turn it into a podcast that's going to go out on this well-known podcast network, and I may actually end up being interviewed about it. Do you know what I mean? It's totally. It's quite a stretch. Weirdly, I think it's because they've heard me do my work okay. more than we've had any experience having these conversations. So I think like <laughs> formalizing it like made it seem normal, which is even though it's like incredibly not normal <laughs> this thing, but it's it was maybe more normal for me to ask questions with a microphone and headphones on. Um, yeah, it made it more of an event. Um, we still talk about it like the summer of 19, you know, it's just like, <laughs> we had all those conversations. It felt like a real moment. I, I, I didn't wind up leaving this piece of tape in, but there's one moment at the very end of the conversation where my sister just shouts, like, does anybody else feel like they've just been in a fever dream? <laughs> like, this is the weirdest week <laughs> of my life. <laughs> you know, I think people often want to talk more than they let on. Not everyone. It's interesting because the reason that it works is because they all agree to participate. What would you have done if, say, your father or your brother or your sister or your mother just said, look, this is just either too intense, too weird, I'm not ready for this? Would it have worked? I don't know. It would depend on how those other conversations went and what came out of them. Mm. I didn't go into those conversations knowing that this would be the podcast. I had no idea what was going to happen in those conversations. And I had been sitting on this Matthew McGill stuff for right. four years at that point. Um, three or four years, yeah. And I didn't know what to do with it and it wasn't like i was trying to save it i was there was a, there were moments where i was like i think it's just done it's just dead it's not going to be anything it wasn't until those conversations with my family happened and went the way they did that that it was like oh i see it now you know if it had gone differently i don't think we'd be talking right now <laughs> you know like i think it just probably wouldn't have been a podcast i've been like i tried something for a few years and it didn't work but what i've often said about this show is like it's sort of two different stories and neither one makes sense without the other. Totally. You know, if it's just the story of Matthew McGill, there's not much at the end of it. He's just kind of a sad guy who a sad thing happens to. And if it's just my family, you know, lots of people have family problems and lots of people have intense conversations. But I think like the only reason mine work in this context is, is because of the journey to get there. It was so weird through this weird guy you know it was it was a it's a real it's been a really strange experience personally <laughs> and i think that's 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 why they worked ultimately okay well you've obviously led us to the question which is this which has been the strangest part of the whole process for me yeah 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 what's been the strangest part of the whole process i think particularly with my siblings but but but, but with my family generally they have such 
richer interior lives than I realized. You know, there's just, they have such bigger thoughts and feelings. Like you, when you know someone, you think you know them, you know, and I grew up with these people. It was like a weird childhood, but it wasn't like particularly bad or, you know, there was nothing like particularly estranged about growing up. We all slept under the same roof. So you feel like you know someone. And then some of the stuff my sister expresses in my interview with her, she talks about these feelings of not wanting to wake up and not wanting to exist. And like I ha I've had those feelings, you know, it truly never occurred to me that she could have them too. It just seemed beyond what I knew of her experience. And so like that, it's just, I just see my family so, so differently than I did a couple of years ago. They're just fuller people to me than I think they were. And I, I mean, I didn't realize that at the time, but now, now I think I do. I think I've read a comment you've made that you're always interested in stories that have one foot in the past and one foot in the present. And I think this probably has to do with some other work that you've done, but I feel like Matthew McGill's story has quite a lot of things that people could learn from, you know, how he ended up treating women in his life or, you know, family, his own daughters. Do we ever learn from the past or are these just continuing mistakes that we all will always make no matter how many podcasts we do about them? Are you asking if people will ever stop fighting with their family? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I've, I've done a lot of, I've worked on a few different shows that have like a sort of history bent to them, like much more standard like history podcasts. And then, yeah, most of my personal work has had some sort of like historical bent to it as well, even if like a little more tangential. I think like the past is a great tool for learning and correcting one's mistakes or avoiding mistakes. But it's also maybe equally, if not a better tool for empathy and for just feeling less alone in those mistakes. Like, I don't know what life would be if we weren't messing up all the time. You know, I don't know what it'd be like to be a human who isn't like constantly stumbling around and like bumping into people and accidentally knocking them over or falling over yourself. You know, I don't think any number of books I could read about the past would tell me how to not do those things um, and make me not do them, but it would make me feel a little less like I'm a weirdo for having that experience, which I felt with this show too, for sure. It was a little bit less like learning about a guy who screwed up with his family, so I won't screw up with my own family, and a little more like, oh yeah, you can be from the richest family in America. You can be from a rather poor family in America. You can be from Long Island, or you can be from Florida, whatever. And st still caring for people is hard, and like caring for yourself is hard, and letting people care for you is hard. Uh, that, to me, was like a bigger comfort than any sort of cautionary tale. If there was one question you could ask Matthew McGill, what would it be? I don't think I would get an honest answer to any big question. So I think that, but I did hear one story about him that's not in the show. <laughs> that if I, if I could get one true answer from him. The thing I would most want to know is he had this uh, dog. It was like a Airedale in the late 80s, early 90s, that he claimed had been rescued from the ocean by a Navy ship, pulled ashore, featured on CNN, and then he adopted the dog. He did have this dog for years. It followed him around everywhere, off leash. There's lots of pictures with him with the dog. His name was Smitty. 
and everyone heard some version of this origin story of the dog that it like pulled out of the ocean. It's really sad at the end of his life when Smitty died. Matthew was so close to him. He like took him to the beach where he claimed he had found him and he got the drugs to put him down from the vet and did it himself like on the beach, you know, in a really like powerful scene and moment. But I've always wondered like if he just found that dog on the road or not. You know, I like it's actually I just like I think I would just pick one story, one silly story and be like is that one true? Cuz I don't think anything he would tell me would be like that honest or revealing. So I guess I would just want to know if that do- where that dog came from. I'm really I got there's a lot of dogs in this show. I got really into it. <laughs> yeah. I just just on that on that particular on that particular subject. Is there anything in the stories that he told people that you just thought this is just crazy that did turn out to be true which was the wildest of the tales that he told that did turn out to be true do you think um the fact that he was an actor like he actually was in a soap opera um was very surprising to me that one i thought like uh, maybe he did like some modeling shoots but never was in anything but he was in fact an actor one of his brothers had also been a model for a pepsi commercial it was that was actually really surprising to me and then Meeting his first wife, Jenny, who who's just, like, an incredible, incredible person. I found her, like, one of the more surprising things as well. It's just like, whoa, like, you wound up with Matthew McGill? <laughs> you're, you're so cool. <laughs> yeah, so I think it was probably that early, early life, that time in New York he spent in the 60s yeah. and 70s. What has the feedback been of your extended family? I guess I mean by that, um, you you probably know what your immediate family thinks about the podcast, but... Do they receive feedback from their friends or other family members, if that makes sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I've had a couple cousins listen who have, like, been really surprised to learn some of the stuff, but also found it, like, very moving. Mm-hmm. I've heard a lot more, honestly, from from Matthew McGill's extended family who've reached out since. Okay. And have really liked the show. A lot of them actually didn't know much about his life because he disappeared for so long. And they've come with their own stories and like more information about his past and it all fits the patterns. Uh, <laughs> different different versions of the same thing. But some of that has actually been some of the, the more moving stuff. Some of the reconnections that have happened in Matthew McGill's family's life as a result of the show. Okay. I'd actually, I'd like to go back to what we, we discussed a little while ago, Eric, about how you persuaded the family to sit down and do your kind of clear the air conversation. As well as that, both your brother and your sister revealed some really, they're not dark secrets at all, but some secrets about themselves. Mm -hmm. Not only did they reveal them to each other for the first time, but again, to a podcast audience. So, uh, you know, how did, how did that kind of play out? I mean, that, that bit of detail, they could have said, all right, we'll talk about all the family problems, but please don't mention yeah. the kid or please don't mention something else. Yeah. So my sister talked a lot about her anxiety and my brother talked about his having had a child in high school that they gave mm-hmm. up for adoption. You know, similarly to, to what I said before, I asked him about this. I mean, what they both said was like, I want to talk about this stuff. Like those kinds of secrets, they just eat at you you know they really really do and i think when you have them for so long you know you can turn on the faucet like and it can drip and you can tell like one person or two people and then there's like another version of where you just like really turn on the faucet and just like let it go and like here it is like this is the truth this is everything but on that it's quite remarkable that they all decided to tell these details all at the same time it's almost like there's this kind of confluence of Eric wants to get us all together. We all recognize that we've had some issues as a family. And, you know, 
maybe now it's the time that we all kind of share some of our secrets with everybody in the family at the same time. It's, it's, it's just interesting that they all did come together at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it is remarkable. And um, like the fact of it, and then also the things they shared specifically. Every interview, I walked away more surprised by what had happened because I thought, I don't know, maybe one of these will be helpful for us as a family or maybe I'll learn something yeah. new. But the extent to which I was learning new things and like connecting with each of them on different levels was like truly, truly surprising. Yeah, I think like that's and I hope that comes through in the show. It's like it's it's the hardest thing to do when you're making a narrative show like this is like capturing like genuine surprise in the moment. We live in a pretty wild time. And so like it's hard to be surprised by much right now. <laughs> um, as I talk to you from my pandemic closet. Uh so to like learn things that that were that remarkable and to have them all happen in such quick succession, it was like, yeah, it was it really melted my brain. I was like, really not sure what to do with it all for a while. It caused a lot of sort of reassessments. In your credits, you mentioned an unlicensed podcast therapist. Mm -hmm. And I would like to know what this person's best or most important skill was. Wow. Yeah. Rachel Ward was my unlicensed podcast therapist. She's a very good friend of mine. Her best, well, she, she helps on edits. So that was like a really useful practical <laughs> thing. She just listened to the show and gave feedback. Um, when you're working on a show this personal, and I think this is true, not just of like making podcasts, but when you're doing anything in your life that is like intensely personal uh, or a big project, it is helpful to have people around who will like keep you out of your own head and will say like, snap out of it, dude. It's just a podcast. And I think <laughs> one of uh, one of my good friend Rachel's best qualities is her ability to like understand the gravity of what you're working through and also to keep it in perspective. She's like a very real person who also is a very good editor. So <laughs> okay. that, that was that was helpful. It's always nice to listen to the credits and find those unsung heroes. She um, at one point there was going to be a storyline in the show that was more about my own mental health. The first time I told this to Rachel, I was like, I think I might record some stuff with my therapist. She's like, you're producing your mental health. Come on, man. <laughs> like my name's Eric and I turned my trauma into a story. She's like, says things like that in a way that was like, um, <laughs> you know, keeps it, uh, keeps you grounded. It's a good, good thing to have people in your life to keep you grounded who also care about you. <laughs> Good job, Rachel. Good job, Rachel. You did mention this, uh, I think, at least once in your narration of the story that um, there might be a perception that people would compare you to Matthew McGill. What do you make of those kind of comparisons? Do you accept them or do you think that you are fundamentally very different? Yeah, I think um, there are lots of ways in which I think we are fundamentally very different. Yeah. I don't think of myself as sort of a serial liar or abuser, um, which... Um, Matthew was and could be. But I do think, uh, you know, I, I one of the things I talk a lot about in the show is sort of my own realization of feeling that I've been a victim in some things that I was actually a participant. I think that's true in my family relationships. And I think a lot of the thinking and work I've been trying to do on myself in the last, you know, couple years as um, is just thinking about the ways in which I've been you know, complicit in things, um, in relationships and, uh, helping people or hurting people. And that isn't always throwing a jug of milk at someone, but it, um, you know, there are lots of ways in one's day-to-day -day life that you're probably not realizing the consequences of your actions. And so 
I think that was a way which has like started to feel more and more like Matthew McGill. Yeah. It's just the inability to recognize some of that. Yeah. You've got one last question, really, and it's a kind of a meta one. So bear bear with us. Uh, what would someone find in your box after you died? And who would you like to produce a podcast about what they find in your box? Right. Um, movie stubs, uh, letters from ex-girlfriends that I can't get rid of. There was a moment where I like, I mean, like I have a box, like I've got a box of stuff and I thought about going through it for the show and then I like pulled it out and was like, this is, this is too much. I don't. And so I haven't actually been in it in a while. So now I'm trying to imagine what, what is actually in it. Yeah. It's so different because I don't have physical photographs. I'm thinking about this very literally. Um, all of a sudden. Sometimes I think about my external hard drive as my box. Like, you could fit most of the work I've done in my career on, like, one little external hard drive, and it would probably be, like, if you included all the, like, rough drafts and the, like, outtakes and the, like, raw tracking sessions, that would actually probably be a lot more useful than any other box of things I've got around. Just, like, watching me screw up and trying to make stuff. I think, like, I'm not actually a very naturally gifted writer or storyteller in any way. A thing I do think I'm pretty good at is putting bad drafts out there for people to tell me why they're bad. You know, like I will get to a point and be very open to people's criticism. The show is like, if the, to the extent that Stay Away works as a show, it's because of editing and like really good editors. And um, I think if people could see some of my early drafts of this thing, like if you realize like, this is not like a naturally occurring thing in the world. And so I think a lot of my life and I think the story that would be told about it, if you could dig into my box, which is probably just an external hard drive, would be one of like constant revisions, constant, constant, constant revisions. Okay. And the second part was, who would you like to narrate the story of what's in your box? Someone sent me a clip of uh, Matthew McConaughey's audiobook, which is circulating right now. He just published a memoir. And he's like, uh, <laughs> he's like, sounds like himself, but also like he's trying to be a beat poet. Okay. <laughs> now, as I'm like describing this, I'm like, no, I don't want, to, I don't want that to be my life. Not. <laughs> um, that's really hard. Tilda Swinton, maybe she seems great. I'm really bad at celebrities too. This is the thing. Like, I could name a bunch of Bachelor contestants, but I'm not very good at Hollywood stuff. Uh, it's fine. We'll let you off. Thank you. Oh, I got really nervous. The other thing is, like, I literally got redder when you asked me to like name celebrities. I'm like, uh, if they weren't in a boy band in the early 2000s, I don't know <laughs> if I know their name. Maybe Harry Styles could do it. Harry Styles would rule. That would be good. Yeah, Harry Styles is really cool. Hard drive and Harry Styles. I mean, we'll find out if he's available in at least 45, 50 years' time. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think that's all. Thank you very much, Eric Menel from Stay Away from Matthew McGill. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. Thank you to Eric for talking about his journalistic endeavor to discover who Matthew McGill was and his reflections on the personal elements of the podcast. As Eric mentioned, the show was structurally pretty different from other things he worked on, blending personal memoir and investigation. Personally, I think the combination was pretty daring, yet it still remains accessible. Uh, Matthew McGill's unusual life kind of draws you in, and yet Eric discovers, ultimately, we all share common struggles as human beings. Yeah, I think daring's a good word. You know, in the hands of a lesser storyteller, it just wouldn't work. 
So a lot of credit goes to Eric for his investigative prowess in tracking down elements of McGill's life and for having the skills to weave it into experiences in his own life. And yeah, you know, his persuasive skills in bringing his own family into the story as well. Um, if you've listened to Stay Away from Matthew McGill, let us know what you think. Uh, you can get in touch with us at metapodshow.com or Twitter at The Metapod Show. Eric is on the web at ericmenel.com and Twitter at ericmenel. There are links and show notes for you at metapodshow.com as always. We're on a fortnightly release schedule for June, July and August. So make sure to follow Metapod wherever you listen to your podcasts so that you have the newest episode available for your next walk. And coming up next on Metapod, it's a science show called Smart Enough to Know Better, hosted by two guys in Australia, Dan Beeston and Greg Waugh. Kev, tell everyone a funny moment about the interview with Greg and Dan. Okay, there are a couple of things really. So just the dynamic between the two of them is clearly one that's been forged over dozens and dozens of episodes. And it's just generally very amusing. They're like an old couple in a way, poking fun at each other, knowing what makes each other tick and being able to finish each other's sentences. Anyway, we inevitably got into Elon Musk a little bit, which was pretty funny and what items they would take to the International Space Station with them. But basically, if you want your science delivered in a smart, accessible and pretty funny way, this is definitely the show for you. Okay, so get ready for that in July. You'll want to know what items they're taking to the International Space Station with them. But until then, go and follow us on Apple Podcasts so that you don't forget. And while you're there, drop us some stars. So I think that's it for now. Yeah, we'll see you next time. You know, that's a fortnight's time, and that's two weeks for the American listeners. As I discovered recently, when my US comrades on the day job looked at me blankly when I suggested we do something in a fortnight, I'm guessing we need to get a guest on about the origins of words. Okay, Kev, whatever you say. Your US comrades don't say, why don't you call us comrades? (laughs) See you all next time. Okay, cheerio. That's it for Metapod this time. Thanks for listening. Metapod will be back soon with another unpacking of the web's most interesting podcasts. But in the meantime, make sure to subscribe at any of the usual places you find your other favourite podcasts. We'd hate for you to miss upcoming episodes, and we'd love it if you left us a review. You can let us know what you think of this episode by going to metapodshow.com. We'll see you next time. Metapod is produced by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May. 